everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. I'm hoping, hoping all of you are staying safe, and we know that we are certainly living in interesting times. Today, we're going to examine the fate of regional public institutions, particularly in the upper Midwest and the Mid-Atlantic regions of the United States. The Brookings Institute recently assessed the economic and educational effects and overall well-being of regional public universities within the Great Lakes region, which consists of six Midwestern states, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Minnesota, Ohio, and Wisconsin. While these states have been important sources of natural resources and centers of economic activity, over the past two decades, economic trends such as globalization and automation have hollowed out their labor markets. It's important to know that a healthy cadre of regional public universities could help close enrollment and attainment gaps and bolster economic growth in communities across the region. Simply stated, they are the backbone of our university systems. Today, my guest is Sarah Hebel, and I will talk with Sarah about three of those states in particular, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. While technically Pennsylvania is not a Great Lakes state, it still has 14 regional publics operating under a system umbrella that's all trying to manage this crisis at the same time. Let me tell you a little bit more about Sarah. Sarah Hebel is co-founder of Open Campus, a nonprofit news organization focused on transforming local reporting about higher education. She's a former assistant managing editor at the Chronicle of Higher Education. She also has more than two decades of experience as a newsroom leader and higher education journalist. She steered accountability and enterprise journalism, set coverage agendas, and helped re create reporting workshops for college journalists. Her first jobs were covering public policy in Congress and in the States. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Karen. I'm delighted to be here. And as you mentioned, I um, love covering and talking about public regionals and state public policy. That's the first job I had at the Chronicle as well. That's great. That's great. Well, I'm a proud graduate of a public regional. I went to Lock Haven University in Pennsylvania, and I've been following, you know, closely how how these uh, these universities have adjusted in all of this because they've been struggling with with uh, you know, enrollment and retention as many uh, colleges have been. But I, I think the important thing about this particular Brookings report is that they had five major findings about the Great Lakes region. And these were these five things. The, the Great Lakes region has a strong concentration of regional public universities, which are important assets for fostering economic recovery. The Great Lakes Regional Public Universities educate more in-state and transfer students than public flagships and R1s, but enrollment is in the decline. The Great Lakes Regional Public Universities help close university attainment and completion gaps for underrepresented students. The business, health, professions, and education majors are the most common fields of study at Great Lakes Regional Public Universities. And even before COVID-19, stagnant revenue had, had created fiscal challenges for Great Lakes Regional Public Universities, leaving them very vulnerable in this current downturn. Sarah, give us a sense from your years of studying public regionals where we are today. Yeah, you've laid it out pretty well as the report does, and what you see in the Great Lakes region is very similar to what you see nationally too. 
these are workhorses of the higher education system. There are about 40, 430 of these regional publics across the country. And they are, as you pointed out, and as this report points out, uniquely positioned in many cases to serve their communities, to uh, reinvent the economy, and to help close achievement gaps that we have, uh, stubborn achievement gaps in our system. At the same time, um, they have become increasingly precarious and they have entered this new downturn in pretty weakened positions with the enrollment declines, the state appropriation declines, and these institutions also have limited levers compared with other types of institutions like their regional, or like their flagships and their research universities to make up the difference when there are cuts in enrollment, uh, cuts in appropriations, and a flagging economy all around them. Unlike public flagships, for instance, um, they really have a ceiling uh, uh, above which they cannot really raise tuition much more without really threatening a lot of their open access or general access missions. They have limited means to adjust their recruitment strategies because they don't have the reach that public flagships and others do to get out-of-state students, international students, and really compete with a wider range of pool of applicants when you have a local declining high school graduating population. So these institutions also have uh, don't tend to get as many research grants um, or, or the types of research grants. And on top of that, they sort of suffer from a cyclical lack of um, access to wealth because they don't have the large endowments or the wealthy donor bases that a lot of the other institutions uh, do. Uh, for instance, I mean, this is a quick example, but in Colorado, Adams State is a regional public. Their endowment is 64,000. The flagship UC Boulder has an endowment of 1.6 billion. So you start to see that just the amount of money that they have sort of uh, that they can access and close the uh, gaps with is just very limited. So they're in a tough spot. 64,000. Yeah. Wow. That's, that is stunning. I, you know, it's, it's interesting because some of the narrative recently has been around trying to stabilize the budgets of schools has been to raid the endowment. So, if, but if you don't have an endowment to raid, it's really kind of moot to even discuss it. Correct. And, and the other thing that some researchers have pointed out to me recently is how um, the, the kinds of, um, the kinds of graduates that regional publics tend to uh, produce are local teachers, they're local nurses and health professionals. And they tend to work in the regions where they've gone to school. And on top of that, their salaries just don't uh, reach the higher levels of some of the engineers and other types of graduates that you see uh, from the, the public flagships and research universities. So then it's a perpetuating cycle. Um, it just, they're not geared toward fundraising in the same ways that the other institutions are. The, the three states that I wanted to focus on, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, have, have really undergone dramatic shifts in their workforce. They're moving away from an, an industrialized economy, from a coal economy into a, a modern 21st tech economy. And how you get that workforce transition to focus on those new kinds of jobs has been a continuous struggle. But it also strikes me that higher education has been disinvested or 
or de-invested from the state legislature. Give us your sense of now under COVID-19 with all the lack of income coming into state legislatures because there's been you know, payroll taxes, because a lot of people have lost their jobs. What are some of those pressures specifically to regional publics? Yeah, I mean, the bigger picture is that in general, higher education appropriations haven't even recovered to the levels that they had in 2008 before the last recession. So every public institution of every kind is already behind the eight ball. I mean, there's some different differences between the states, but, but as a whole, uh, they're still down. So for the public regionals, this, this Brookings report found that uh, enrollments were down 10% um, over the last decade or so, and per student appropriations have been down 8%. So you can see that already coming into where we are right now, that there uh, are already limits on the amount of state aid that are coming to these institutions. The thing about regional publics, as I just mentioned too, is that state aid and changes in state aid matter a lot more to them than that matter to some of the other bigger universities, public universities, because the proportion of their budgets that come from the state tend to be higher because they have these limits of where else they get the money. So it's a, a particularly tough hit for these institutions to be taking as we go into this new sort of era of COVID budgeting, I guess. And so already states are starting to reopen their budgets. You start to see institutions across the country preparing to um, freeze hiring, to cut programs, to lay people off. So for instance, looking at one of the states that we're talking about, you know, Western Michigan is a regional public in, in Michigan, obviously. And they've asked everybody and i've seen this elsewhere too to prepare for worst case scenarios of 20 percent cuts in every uh, part of the university budget they've already had some layoffs and they're bracing for a lot more there the state accounts for about a quarter of their budget but you know the um but still the um, ability for an institution like that to um to absorb many more cuts will just mean uh, threaten it will threaten jobs it will threaten programs yeah yeah I, i've been paying attention to the to western and central michigan because of their location in the states and the areas that they serve and i, I think one of the things they they have uh, at least publicly stated they feel like they're in competition with the university of michigan and usually the ann arbor campus and what they seem to be hearing from some students who elect not to go to western or central but to, who hope to go to Ann Arbor is simply because they're looking for a college experience. And sometimes big time football can play a role into that. Uh, what's your sense about how that affects our three states that we're talking about? Yeah, certainly there, there's a draw to the public regional, to the big time sports programs that they provide along with the other um, big college town feel and experience of going to college. And I mean, that's all complicated and threatened in and of itself because of this COVID environment. So how much Ann Arbor will really be able to offer that or, um, or Penn State or Madison, I mean, that's all up in the air as well right now. But in the, in the longer term, that's right. The, the, that's part of why those institutions can draw a wider range of students. They can um, pull people in from out of state and they can have a wider range of uh, they, that helps them have the flexibility in many cases to raise tuition more as well. So, um, so regional publics 
um, struggle with that. But on the other hand, um, you know, one thing that I think we lose sight of in this conversation about college in general in the United States is how geographically focused a lot of students are in making their college decisions. So a lot of times the people that regional publics are serving are the people who, for various reasons, need to and want to go to college close to home. Over half of Americans go to college within 50 miles of home, and these regional publics really serve the people in those communities in ways that um, others uh, in the state don't. So, you know, it, it may be that um, a student in Western or Central Michigan has thoughts of going to Ann Arbor, but it it's also, but also there are a lot of people who um, really are more pragmatic in how they think about college decision making and are thinking about where are the programs I want to go to, where can I afford to go, um, where can I get myself to, how can I balance that with my different family obligations, and some of those decisions uh, way much more prominently in the minds of the student, the kinds of students that the regional public tends to serve. I think that's a really good point. This idea of geographic closeness has always been attractive to people and residents of a particular state. But I wonder if it's also being driven by the fact that families don't want their, their students too far away in this age of COVID-19, that they don't want to have them get stranded on campus if a campus has to close click quickly or, or something happens they need to need to pivot and do a different kind of delivery method. So regional publics play a really important role for serving those areas. But if those areas are losing population and losing the demographics of college age students, how do you survive, especially if you're really limited to recruiting within this, your, the borders of your state? <clears throat> Yeah, that's a tough question that obviously the leaders of these institutions, state policymakers and others have been grappling with for quite some time. And it's it's a tough question. There are a lot of uh, states, the, the PASHI system, the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania state system, in um, the uh, University of Wisconsin system or two, where leaders have proposed different ways of, of whether you look at it as mission differentiation and making sure that each campus offers a very unique set of programs um, and or combined with some version of uh, sharing across institutions where you can combine administrative um, services and you can also um, make it um, sort of, I guess, as the chancellor at the uh, Pennsylvania system has tried to call it the sharing university, where you are um, making sure that uh, there are easier ways for students across campuses, across the state, uh, to sort of take advantage of the programs um, at the other institutions so that perhaps you don't have to spend as much to recreate those programs in every little, little spot that you've got a campus. But it's still, a, it's still a challenge to figure that out. And some of the policy solutions that the folks at the Brookings, um, in the Brookings report uh, proposed, and also some researchers I've talked to recently who are focused on the challenge of the regional public and the rural, rural public as well, um, have talked about looking at federal, federal solutions because the state policy challenges, as we've talked about, are, are really huge and and they seem to be intractable in certain ways. So what can the federal government do to spur more state investment in public regionals or in public higher education in general? Can it create a classification of rural serving institutions that get grants? Can it do more to incentivize 
regional publics to serve other types of populations such as adult students? Can it do more to um, find ways to um, just generally put more money into the system. Now, of course, that's a challenge too because the federal government does not have money growing on trees either. But those are some of the ways that the policymakers are thinking right now. Some of these researchers are thinking right now, how can you on a more national basis, try to focus more attention and put more resources into these institutions? I mean, one of the stories that one researcher, Cecilia Orphan, I just spoke with last week, um, she's out in Denver, um, told me it was a story of a, of a state lawmaker in Washington state that she encountered in a conference. And he was looking at the enrollment trends at some of their uh, rural oriented, regionally oriented institutions and was expressing that at some point he wondered whether the state could continue to support those institutions at all, just given um, the challenges. And then almost in the same breath, she said he mentioned how the University of Oregon and Eugene uh, was starting to attract so many more out-of-state students. So now it's about 50-50 in-state, out-of-state students at the University of Oregon. And Celia said, you know, I kind of asked him in, in sort of theory, could you make a case, however, that maybe the state is over-investing in a public flagship? Of course, there's not a lot of over-investment happening, but in the sense that a regional public really is serving 80 to 90% in-state students, and you have public flagships that are serving a mix, um, is there a case where uh, state policymakers might be able to shift more uh, funding over to the public regionals than they might before? Now, that's a hard sell, but, but it's theoretically one that, that some people are, are trying to talk about. Well, for my listeners who, who've tuned into other podcasts, we actually talked about that in relation to the University of Alabama and how they, they possibly, based on a research study work, uh, not actually living up to their definition of being a land-grant institution to serve the in-state population of the University of, of, of Alabamans, but, versus, but spending tremendous amounts of money and investing in their football program to attract wealthy out-of-state students in order to, you know, keep their out-of-state tuition dollars up. It sounds like that's somewhat what was being said about the University of Oregon. Correct. And, and again, back to the point that the regional publics just don't have those sorts of levers or those sort of choices. That's a choice for Alabama or Oregon or Michigan or Penn State to make, and along with state policymakers and others who control decisions about um, the mix of students. But they have, a because of football, because of um, bigger sports programs, because of their, um, their range of academic programs and research programs, they are able to decide, do we want a student body? that's 80% in-state or 80% out-of-state, and that has financial consequences and implications, but gives them a lot more flexibility. Yeah, makes sense. So um, just building on your comment about trying to spread out the, the uh, academic interest to different campuses, I've heard that about the, the Pennsylvania system as well. You know, we have in that 14 universities and colleges, we have you know, rural, we have suburban, we've got uh, an hour's drive away versus six hours away from a, from a, a city. And, and you've got strengths and weaknesses for those campuses. What's interesting is that the rural campuses right now, early in, late in June, early in the summer, we are seeing increases in the number of students going to the more rural campuses. And I'm wondering if that's a trend because of COVID-19 or because they want to be on less dense campuses. 
I don't know. So might that turn the tide a little bit for public regionals who are generally located in more rural areas of states? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's a little bit hard to tell yet what the real effect of COVID will be on enrollments and whether any changes that happen this year will stick longer term um, once this is all figured out, whenever that is. But it is true that it's possible that regional publics could be drawing people who are apt to stay closer to home and choose a lower cost institution, especially when it's unclear how much will be in-person instruction versus remote learning. And at the same time, they also might be drawing people who have lost their jobs and are looking for retraining. Those numbers are a little bit unusual, uh, unlike other recessions so far because of COVID. You know, often in the past, recessions have come because a certain part of the economy has tanked or has really struggled. But here, it's an unusual circumstance in which across the economy, almost everybody is being hurt by this. So a college can't really specifically retrain somebody from one field to another that's suddenly thriving. It's just everybody's down. But it does open up, in some cases, perhaps opportunities for people to seek training that, they'd are, that they had previously set aside. So it's 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 a bit of a it's a bit unclear what's behind some of these trends, but it's certainly something to watch. Yeah, makes sense. Going back to what you said earlier about um, uh, creating uh, majors on different campuses, again, I, it reminds me of, of the observation that I, when I visited with some of the faculty at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse, um, they were proud of their very robust kinesiology and athletic medicine program. I think it was one of the only ones in the state at the time. And, and yet that, the existence of that very program gave them a real advantage in their sports programs because they were able to attract a lot of athletes who were interested in coaching and athletic medicine and teaching. And so the other campuses were like, hey, well, then why can't we offer those majors too? Because we'd like to be able to attract some of the athletes. So these decisions can create imbalances in other areas, even though they make sense from a purely financial viewpoint. That's that's right. So it's a matter of what is the right what is the right mix. That's what everybody's always trying to figure out. In in Wisconsin, the um, outgoing president of the system actually recently just proposed that the regional publics there all really winnow what they offer, that they get rid of all duplicative programs. And there's a really strong pushback then from faculty, not surprisingly, who felt first not really consulted on that plan, but also felt that it was really going to weaken each of the individual campuses. There's an argument that people make about places just can't afford to be all things to all people anymore. But part of the challenge with the regional public also becomes that, that very issue that I talked about before, which is they really are serving people who don't want to and often can't go very far from home. So if it, so it doesn't necessarily mean that that campus has to be um, something for everybody, but it has to be a lot for a certain population. So how do you get that right balance between how to get every individual access to the kinds of programs they want, to the liberal arts programs that underlie a lot of the other training they want to do? Broadband and, and online learning can certainly help, but as we're seeing very clearly now, there are limits to that as well, and also limits to access. Um, 
that's especially challenging in these rural areas and especially challenging for these populations of lower income and minority students that these regional publics tend to serve in greater numbers than other institutions do. And so you, you pile on um, some other barriers to, to some of the solutions that, that make it a little bit of a extra challenge to figure out what the right mix is. Well, how much can you offer at each campus that's unique to those campuses and might be a draw? And how much do you need to make sure that there's also access on top of that to generalized programs that may be offered at many, but for good reason. Yeah. So it's a, it's a balancing act and, and every state is really struggling with that. And in good times, they're, they're struggling with that. So you add this other layer. Now, now let's add one more layer of complexity, and that's the idea of uh, unions, faculty yep. unions. And in Pennsylvania, there's the, the coaches are unionized as well in the regional public system. So how do you manage that in, in addition to all the other challenges that public regionals face? Yeah, that's certainly another element. And as I was just mentioning in Wisconsin, that the, the faculty uh, pushback on the plan has I think delayed a little bit and, and caused um, the, the university system to think a little bit harder about what the best, best paths forward are. And, and that pushback is healthy. You know, a lot of times this dialogue gets to um, a better solution, but it's also uh, complicating how quickly institutions can shift or move. And, and sometimes for good reasons, and sometimes you might, you might argue that it can hold institutions back from the wider range of options that they otherwise might be considering. In Pennsylvania, this is a, been, uh, as you mentioned, in this Pennsylvania state system has, has long been a challenge for, for the leaders, at least from their point of view. The unions are strong, they, are, um, they protect pay, they protect jobs. And so when you're looking at shifting programs or shifting what's offered where, uh, a lot of times the union contracts can um, already kind of have set in stone what needs to happen or who needs to be at different campuses. And so then when you're trying to figure out how to move the institution, um, change is just more difficult, that there are more players um, at the table, um, and it takes longer to work those issues through. And the last layer that, of course, I'll add on top of this is the political will. The political will of the folks who really would like to, um, you know, advocate for and maybe uh, restructuring or consolidation. And then the politicians who represent that local community is saying, wait a minute, I'm not going to lose a regional campus on my watch. That's just not going to happen. So they keep kicking the can down the road. And there's been this sense of, um, less and less interest in promoting higher education in some state policy areas. That that's it's seen. Uh, there's some anti higher education rhetoric being said on state capitals and things like that. How does that layer in on top of this as well? Yes, you you brought up two important points: the parochialism and the um, and the really the really strong um, sense of protectionism that that for understandable reasons each. Um, each state lawmaker has over the institution in their area. I mean, these, these colleges in region, regional publics play outsized roles in their communities. They are often the largest employer. They are often the arts and cultural centers. They are often doing research that's very specific to the local area. And people are neighbors of, of and, and they know one another in ways that um, you know, might not have that same dynamic in bigger cities or at bigger campuses. So you can see very quickly um, why 
any efforts to shift the um, size or the, even the existence of a regional public would 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 hit um, with a lot of strong resistance from the people who live in that area. Mm -hmm. the, the bigger picture issue about public resentment of higher education is really um, becoming more prominent and it's been very politicized and you can look at Gallup and Pew and other polls that show Americans trust in higher education is really um, is really declining and so more and more the state lawmakers also take on that viewpoint and it's uh, and there's a lot of skepticism of these institutions and a lot of a disconnect between them and 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 the, the public that they serve yeah. so that makes it harder for these institutions to effectively make a case for more money in certain cases because they're starting already with with a bit of skepticism and then if residents are skeptical well then they're not clamoring for the state lawmakers to make decisions um, to put more money into these institutions and they don't and then these in, these lawmakers don't see it in their political interest to do that so it's a it's a declining cycle and it's a real problem. And Americans really, on top of that, have come to see higher education as a private good more than a public good. And another stat I like to throw out, in, in more than half of states now, private families spend more than states do on, on, on public education, right? That tuition dollars account for more of a university's education budget than the um, state aid does. So, so not only in sort of how Americans view it, but in, in actually how it's being financed, it is becoming more and more something that is something that can help individual people, but that as a society, we together are not feeling strongly uh, about supporting. And so that, that makes, that, that plays into why you see um, in good times and in bad now, sort of a decline overall in the per student spending from states on higher education. Well, Sarah, you've given us an awful lot to think about today. And it's certainly for those of us who love higher education and believe passionate, and for those who are students who, who wanna study where higher education is going, you've given us a lot to think about. I know that your project, uh, your open campus media project is, is a real um, labor of love for you. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started with that project? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, about a year ago, my co-founder Scott Smallwood and I started Open Campus to try to do a better job of um, getting coverage of higher education to local communities. We spent many years at the Chronicle of Higher Education, both of us, and um, we, we wrote about it for an audience of people who largely work within higher education, and those are influential people and important people to reach. And, um, but, but, but we realized that the, the broader public hasn't had as much um, coverage of higher education, in part because the, the local news industry is in decline on top of everything else, and yet ever more so now, again, because of COVID and in this, in this economy. And so we saw when we were at the Chronicle, sort of this diminishment of local coverage of higher education, and we wanted to be part of the solution to reinvigorate that, to reinvigorate both local news and um, coverage of higher education specifically. They're both public goods. They are both important to democracy. And going back to what I was just saying about public resentment, um, we feel like shining a light on higher education and bringing it to account um, how well it serves citizens of their communities, how well it serves the social mission that it espouses, 
um, and it's really important to our, our, our well-being and to the um, efforts we're trying to make to improve social mobility and economic opportunity in our country. So if these institutions aren't held to account and if their citizens can't see the good and the bad and the opportunities and the challenges very clearly, then they're only going to feel especially increasingly skeptical and distant from these institutions. So we think journalism can be one way of fixing that, one way of helping um, improve and elevate higher education. Well, Sarah, it's been great having you on the podcast. I'm hopeful that we'll reach many people who are as equally passionate about regional publics as you and I are. Thanks for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.